today's episode of the Miso TV podcast. In today's episode, we interview Dr. Rafid Hassan, a medical oncologist at the National Cancer Institute, as he speaks to us about his natural history study of patients with mesothelioma. This study seeks to answer questions such as why certain mesothelioma patients do better than others. MesoTV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. This season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellican Fox, Bristol Myers Squibb, Novacure, Merck, the Gorey Law Firm, and Early Lucarelli, Sweeney, and Meisenkofen. Visit CureMiso.org to learn more. Uh, Dr. Hassan, thank you so much for agreeing to participate in this episode of Miso TV. Um, I know that you are a very well-known researcher and clinician um, situated at the National Institute of Health. Um, would you tell us a little bit about you know, your background and your research interests in mesothelioma? Thank you, Mary, and uh, thanks for the invitation. And it is indeed uh, a pleasure to talk to you as well as uh, to the mesothelioma community. Uh, so, well, I'm, as you mentioned, a physician scientist at NIH. Uh, I have been here for many, many years. And in terms of my background, uh, I came here as a fellow to train in medical oncology. And in 1996, I joined the lab of Ira Paston to learn how to do lab research. And his group had just discovered a protein called mesothelin. Uh, so when I went to meet him for the first time, that was in 1995, he said, well, if you join my lab, uh, maybe you could work on mesothelin. And uh, this is a new antigen we have discovered, and maybe someday it will be useful to treat patients with mesothelioma. And uh, never in my wildest dream would I have thought that I would be working on the same subject uh, for the last 25 years and uh, developed many different drugs. Uh, so that's how I got into mesothelioma research is because in the lab I was working on mesothelium uh, and uh, it is highly expressed in patients with mesothelioma. And, uh, and uh, since I was developing therapies to target it, I got referrals uh, for patients with mesothelioma from Clearwater Schragen, who used to be at MD Anderson. And that's how I got involved in mesothelioma research for the last 20 years. So the goal of my program is to develop better therapies for patients with mesothelioma, as well as learn more about mesothelioma so we can ultimately benefit these patients. And I do laboratory research, as well as see patients in my practice. Thank you. So uh, I'm pretty sure that it's about 78% of all mesothelioma patients have the epithelial variety, which is the one that truly expresses uh, uh, mesothelium. Am I correct? That's correct. So it is expressed only on the epithelial mesothelioma. So the therapies that we are developing will be useful for those patients. And the vast majority of the epithelioid mesotheliomas highly express this protein which makes it a very good target for this disease. Right, and it also lends itself then to the biphasic, uh, as long as they have a strong component of epithelial uh, cells, am I correct? Absolutely, 
And as you correctly mentioned, mm -hmm. sometimes we get reports about biphasic, but uh, that is depends upon the pathologist. So if patients have biphasic mesothelioma, uh, we have them read by our pathologist at NIH, and uh, we also do mesothelial staining. So if it is predominantly epithelial, they could be eligible for our studies. Thank you. So I guess that leads me into um, a, you know, a big area of research for you, and I know that's something that you've been building upon over the years. So um, you have a protocol in place called the Natural History Protocol. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that protocol? Sure. Uh, so as you know, I started uh, building the program at NIH uh, in early 2000s and would see patients mostly for my clinical trial. And uh, then as uh, the years went, uh, went uh, I noticed that I'm seeing a lot of mesothelioma patients uh, for consultation or some of the patients are not eligible for the trial. So we decided that it would be very important to study uh, these patients, their tumors, their specimen, so we can learn more about the disease and develop better therapy. So in 2013, we opened this protocol, uh, which is a very ambitious protocol uh, to use patients' specimens to, for clinical and laboratory research and uh, with the ultimate goal of translating these findings to the clinic. So we started this protocol in 2013, and any patient with mesothelioma more than two years of age, any type of mesothelioma would be eligible. And, uh, and we would collect highly clinically annotated biospecimens. Uh, so we're very fortunate to be at NIH, uh, where it is possible and even encouraged to do these type of studies on rare cancers because compared to other academic settings, we do not bill our patients. We don't have to worry about a lot of other things. So this is a great environment to do such research. And that's how we got started in 2013. Uh, so far, we have enrolled close to 500 uh, patients. Uh, I think about 466 mesothelioma patients on this protocol from 2013. And the, and we have collected more than 3,000 biospecimens, more close to 300 tissue specimens. So this is a huge repository of biospecimens, tumor tissues. And the nice thing about this compared to other blood banks is that we have very granular detailed clinical information about these patients and we follow them throughout the course of the disease. So um, I guess this also speaks to the sense of volunteerism and generosity of this community because per se, this is not really a treatment protocol. Um, the benefit to the patient is really uh, contributing toward the knowledge and understanding of mesothelioma. Absolutely. And uh, as a clinician, uh, I'm amazed uh, uh, that every patient, almost every patient I see wants to participate in the study. And many patients specifically come for this study alone. We already talked to, we have an outstanding research nurses. We already talked to the patient. You know, we have a sense of whether they would be eligible for a study or not. But uh, many, many patients just want to come just for the purposes of uh, donating the biospecimen. Uh, they know that it will not help them, but they want to contribute to mesothelioma research. And uh, this is really, uh, we can write any protocol, but ultimately it is the patients and 
you know, I'm always very thankful and uh, amazed by the spirit of the patients to donate it so they can, the patients who come after them can have better outcomes. So it's truly... So a question, a question, Dr. Hassan, I think it's kind of a scary term. What does donated biospecimen mean? What, what exactly are the patients donating? Yeah, so when the patients come in, the most important thing is uh, uh, that we get a detailed history uh, about uh, it, about the disease, but uh, then uh, they have the option that they can contribute research specimens. Uh, they can contribute the biospecimen for research. For example, if they have a tumor tissue, they already have a biopsy someplace else. They give us permission to get the tissue so we can analyze the tissue in the lab and they donate their blood, uh, their urine or saliva, so we can uh, look at different biomarkers uh, and study them. And they also, if they have pleural effusion or ascites, which we are draining for therapeutic purposes, that allows us to utilize those specimens in the lab. So we can work directly with tumor cells taken from patients. And this is extremely important. We can study with all the cell lines that have been made, you know, that have been there for many, many years. Yeah. But they do not represent the biology in actual patients because these cell lines have been grown for many, many years. But when we get biospecimens directly from the patient's pleural effusion or ascites or tumor, and we take them right that day and we grow it in the lab or we grow them in mice, that is really as close as you can get to biospecimens in patients. So I cannot stress how valuable it is because this allows us to test the drugs we are developing in conditions as close as in humans. So this is really key and patients very willingly, and as I mentioned, some patients specifically come for that purpose so we can study it in the lab and, uh, you know, they feel kind of, uh, you know, that it is their duty to help propel the research to benefit patients down the road. And this is extremely important and it really has helped us do that. So Dr. Hassan, what is the obligation of the patient and how do they enroll in a, in a study like this? So uh, any, uh, almost every patient that we see in the clinic, whether or whatever they come for consultation or clinical trial, we discuss the study and it's com obviously completely voluntary. We say that we have this protocol and uh, the goal is to advance mesothelioma research. It uh, will probably not benefit you. And uh, we need to uh, collect these specimens and then we follow you over a period of time. Uh, we contact these patients at regular interval. And uh, so after that, we, if they are seeing us on a regular basis, we collect these specimens every year. So we can see the changes in certain parameters over the course of the disease. And also we can, we have patients who live eight years, 10 years, and the goal is to find out why these patients did better. Can we learn from their biospecimen or identify some genes or other characteristics that these patients uh, do better. So even following patients who are our long-term uh, uh, patients on the protocol allows us to, uh, you know, uh, 
learn more about the disease. So in terms of the patient's obligation, as you mentioned, we see them the first visit, but then we see them yearly. And also my research mm -hmm. nurses contact this patient at frequent interval to see how they're doing so we can collect that clinical data. Yeah, Dr. Hassan, I, I think I recall from the past that if a patient enrolls in, their, in your protocol, um, the, uh, your, your program uh, pays for their transportation back and forth yearly uh, to continue to, you know, to participate in the program. Is, is, am I correct in that? Does that continue? Absolutely. So this is uh, throughout the NIH, which is a fantastic thing, is that once patients enroll on the study, the NIH pays for the patient's uh, uh, travel to, to NIH, to Bethesda, and they also mm -hmm. pay uh, for their stay in the area, it's not 100%, but they contribute, they pay for their stay. And all the uh, tests, such as uh, imaging studies, CT scan, PET scans, or any other tests that we do are free of cost. There is no billing to the patient. So uh, as far as the financial thing goes, once the patients go on the study, they can see us at any time, we do not, uh, they don't have to pay for their air, air travel or ground transportation, and the NIH helps with that, which is a wonderful uh, thing that allows the patient not to be bothered by, while they're going through this difficult disease, not to have to worry about uh, getting the, uh, the bills or other financial obligations. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, that is a very nice thing about the NIH. So I think our tax dollars are well spent. So, um, Dr. Zanai, I feel like I'm firing questions at you at rapid speed, um, but I guess something else that comes to mind is that you've opened this protocol in 2013. Um, you've been collecting specimens over the year. Are you able to discuss with us or tell us about any of the information that you've learned, things that would be important and exciting uh, for future treatments? Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, this protocol uh, has helped us to make certain key discoveries in mesothelioma uh, area. Uh, one of the uh, most exciting work that we did uh, was to look at these patients and look at uh, germline mutations that may predispose patients to mesothelioma. Uh, so when we started it, there was already reports uh, that uh, a gene BAP1 uh, increases the susceptibility of mesothelioma, but those reports were small, small number of patients, or they were either selected patients who had asbestos, no asbestos exposure or asbestos exposure. But what this protocol allowed us to do is that we just took the first about 250 patients when we started analyzing them, regardless of their clinical characteristics, regardless of their age, regardless of asbestos exposure, we just took in uh, uh, the first 250 patients, unselected patients, and in collaboration with uh, Dr. Uh, Mary Claire King at University of Washington, we looked at genes that may predispose to mesothelioma. And uh, that study was published a couple of years ago in uh, Proceedings of National Academy of Science and clearly showed uh, that BAPON is an important gene in about 8 to 10%. We defined the different syndrome. But what was novel is that we, using this large cohort, we show that patients who have germline mutations in BAP1 live longer, have a much better prognosis. So that was a key finding. Uh, and that led us to our next protocol, as you alluded to, 
is looking at germline mutations in patients with mesothelioma and then following their family members, as well as mesothelioma patients with BAF1 over the course of many, many years to look at risk of developing other cancers, as well as more importantly, to do screening for these cancers. As you know, there is no screening guidelines for patients who had germline mutation in BAF1, but in a very systematic scientific manner, we want to study these patients and their family members who have the gene for the risk of developing other cancers. So uh, this protocol opened about a couple of years ago, and we followed these patients at regular intervals with imaging studies, such as CT scans, as well as uh, other uh, blood tests, as well as eye exam, yearly skin exam. And we work in close collaboration with ophthalmologists, dermatologists, urologists to do that. But all this work was made possible because of uh, our natural history protocol, we wouldn't be, this protocol with BAFON would not have existed if we had not started with this one. And we have published several papers using the research specimen donated by patients, which has allowed us to develop new therapies for these patients, including anti-mesothelin agent. And uh, so it really has contributed to us developing new therapeutics based on the work done under the National History Protocol that is now in the clinic. And uh, I would like to uh, you know, emphasize that uh, I really view this as a national mesothelioma resource. It's not the NIH mesothelioma National History Protocol. I really think that it is the you know, the, the, the U.S. National History Protocol for Mesothelioma, because uh, mm -hmm. this has been contributed by patients all over the country. And the amount of biospecimens we have collected, there's no way my lab uh, can ever analyze all these things. My lab studies certain areas. And uh, so mm -hmm. I see it as a national treasure that needs to be shared with any mesothelioma researcher in the country so we can accelerate new discoveries. And we have been doing it in an informal mechanism that we freely share these resources with anyone who contacts us. And this has led to multiple publications by other researchers mm -hmm. who utilize this specimen. Uh, but I am thinking uh, my plan is to do it in a more formal setting. As I mentioned, close to 500 patients have been enrolled in the study. There are more than 3,000 specimens, and uh, I do not have the capacity to utilize all these specimens. I don't want these specimens to sit in the freezers and uh, you know just be wasted. Mm -hmm. So I am thinking of setting a formal mechanism in collaboration with the NCI leadership with foundations such as the Mesothelioma Foundation or other interested parties so that we have an external advisory committee that can go with any proposal that we get and we just send the specimen. Of course, we have to follow mm -hmm. the guidelines and the protocol and, uh, and the consent, but I think 
uh, we are able to do that, but we need to have a formal mechanism so that anyone can ask us for the specimen and we accelerate that research very, very quickly. Thank you. So um, if, a, if a patient has been diagnosed with mesothelioma, you know, I don't know if the guidelines are as clear as we'd like them to be. Do you advocate or are there guidelines now suggesting that all patients should be tested for germline mutations? So uh, it's an evolving field. In our clinical mm -hmm. practice, well, all patients that I see in the clinic are offered uh, germline testing. And I think I would say that more than 90% of more than 90% of patients want to do that. And all patients mm -hmm. we see in the clinic are seen by a genetic counselor. We have an outstanding uh, genetic counselor. And uh, so we see, offer that to all the patients, regardless of any history. And uh, so we mm -hmm. do that uh, in our practice. And we are sometimes surprised to, uh, you know, to see germline mutation in patients we might not have expected. So in our practice, mm -hmm. we do that, but uh, we also, they are part of this protocol, uh, but if they have germline mutation, then they can go on the germline BAP1 protocol. And I think that protocol over the, it's a long-term protocol, but I think it will save patient life by detecting some of these cancers at an early stage when they're resectable. Mm -hmm. And again, we are very fortunate that at NIH, we have other clinicians and scientists who are interested in that. You're very familiar with uh, Dr. Shrump, uh, who I work with very closely. He has a similar protocol. So if we detect any cancers early, they could get surgery with, under Dr. Shrump's protocol uh, with uh, Dr. Blakely, who works on peritoneum mesothelioma. So, so we are very fortunate that we can for these patients to other therapies or remove the cancer at an early stage. Similarly, we work very closely with our urologists who have a lot of interest in BAP1 kidney cancer, uh, as well as bladder cancer, as well as our ophthalmologists and dermatologists. So it's a perfect fit that we have these other clinicians interested in this syndrome. So, uh, Dr. Hassan, at what age do you start screening um, the children um, of, you know, of the patient or other family members who carry the BAP1 gene? Do you so, have an age uh, that uh, is, is determined? Yeah, so it is still something that we, uh, we, we are learning from the first few patients we have, I think, enrolled for the natural, for the BAP1 protocol, I think more than 30 families was, uh, or maybe 18, 20 families and 35 members, I have to look at the numbers. Uh, when we wrote the protocol, I think we had written 18 or about 16 uh, for certain tests. So certain tests were like eye exam or ophthalmologic exam, any patients about age 16, we could do that yearly. These are non-invasive tests. And for the more invasive tests such as scans, uh, we had initially put in 35 years. But we kind of still fine tuning that because we sometimes see patients uh, who develops have some cancer at an earlier age. So, but by and large, our initial plan was to do non-invasive tests at age 18 and do other tests such as scans starting at age 35 mammograms. Uh, and so, but then after 40, we do it uh, yearly. 
So it is still a work in progress and we're learning from the first few patients, we're modifying the protocol. But the principle is that in the younger patients do non-invasive tests and once they are more than 35 or I believe 40 years, we do the scans. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think you know another good thing as you had mentioned before that the NIH covers the costs of scans, et cetera. You know, this really is, is a way almost to protect privacy as well because uh, you know, you're not going through a private company um, allowing them to know that you're having this frequent testing that you may have a hereditary risk. So, you know, in this day and age where insurance can sometimes be uncertain, uh, you know, factoring this in I think is also important yeah, I, that people are, you know, considering. Absolutely. When we started the BAP1 screening protocol, I did not realize how intensive it is, not only the resource-wise, but in terms of follow-up because you have a lot of uh, uh, individuals who have a general limitation, but they're otherwise fine. We know that they have a high risk of developing cancer, then we are screening them. So there's a tremendous amount of data that is collected. And when you do some of these scans, you know, you can get some abnormalities which may not be clinically relevant. And then you have to follow those abnormalities, as you know. Uh, but it also involves uh, getting scans at frequent intervals, a lot of data is generated. So it is a very, very intensive study, which I think will be very hard to do outside of NIH because mm -hmm. the issues you mentioned in terms of reimbursement, mm -hmm. insurance companies doing the scans, doing the mammogram, and we are able to do that at no cost. Um, so I think that's what makes it attractive. And to be honest, we get referrals from all over the country because uh, they know it is hard to follow this patient long-term. So we collaborate with mm -hmm. the clinicians and they are, they're very happy to send them to us to do the scans and follow with them. So we see the patients collaboratively, but it allows us to do all these cancer prevention mm -hmm. Studied. So the reason we are doing all this is that in a very systematic scientific manner, we study if screening is of benefit. You know, we are going with the hypothesis that early screening will save patients' lives by detecting cancers early, which makes sense. But this needs to be shown in a very systematic scientific manner so that at the end of the day, we can use this data to establish guidelines for the community. And it's very important to stress that germline mutation in BAP1 has much bigger implications than just risk of mesothelioma. As you know very well, they're at the risk of many common cancers. So if we are able to identify screening guidelines, it clearly could save patients' lives over the long run by preventing other more common cancers besides mesothelioma. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So if a patient has been diagnosed, um, seen by you, and, you know, determined to be BAP1, um, with family members, um, if they're reluctant to travel initially, uh, do you have a kit that you're able to send out that they could um, send back to you and you could start, you know, the discussion at that point? Yeah. So uh, we do have a uh, genetic counselor who talks to the patients on the phone and we are able to send them a saliva kit and, uh, and it's a clear certified test. And so they can mm -hmm. send it directly to the lab and we get the result. 
So uh, I would just like to emphasize that when we do germline testing, we do it uh, from a CLIA certified lab rather than it's not a research lab in my lab. We send it out to a lab that has expertise in doing the test as well as reporting the result because this has huge implications. So yes, so we can send the uh, kit out. So if they're, they don't have a germline mutation, that's great. So we do not need to worry about them. But if they have germline mutation, then we I physically see them here and have them come to NIH. Yes, absolutely. And it, it's very important. And because it's, oh, sorry. sorry, it's important to emphasize that we. Sorry, go ahead. No, please. It's important to emphasize that all this will would not be possible if we didn't have a genetic counselor, Alex Levinix. She is very, uh, you know, interested in BAP1 germline patient. And uh, so really, really helps us with that. I, she does most of the work and I see them a little bit later once we have confirmed the germline mutation, she has done the genetic counseling. So I cannot emphasize how important that is to us. Thank you. And um, my question would be then, uh, you're sending the specimen out to, uh, to another laboratory. So I would presume, and I guess if you could explain uh, about the identifying the data um, you know, how do we protect the patient's privacy now that a specimen is leaving your hands and going elsewhere? So I think uh, it, it would be covered, uh, uh, you know, I need to talk to Alex, she is the expert in this one, but I would say that uh, mm -hmm. it's just like a physician ordering a test. I don't think when we send it to a commercial lab, I, I don't think that they can uh, utilize the data other than to send it to the referring physician. Uh, just like mm -hmm. we order any other test. Uh, and so I think uh, that safeguards that, I would assume. I don't mm -hmm. think they would share those results with anyone else other than the physicians mm -hmm. who order the test. Mm -hmm. So I think it is very similar to other genetic, all the safeguards that are in place, similar to if mm -hmm. a physician ordered a BRCA1 or a BRCA2 test. So we, it's mm -hmm. just a commercial, uh, because we, ha we can do the tests here, but it's not clinical grade or CLIA certified. So we need it to be done in an outside lab. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Hassan. So, you know, I think this really, you know, makes the case for, you know, all patients, you know, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're so inclined to participate in this type of a research study, it's important. And if Dr. Hassan was to find that, you know, you or your family members have that germline mutation, then you have the opportunity to be followed and, you know, perhaps save your life or someone else's um, with some of the early detections of some of the other cancers that follow these uh, germline mutations. So, I, you know, I do think it's in the best, you know, interest of the patient, but I do understand with, um, you know, people under treatment, all the complexities of the disease, sometimes this is an extra step, but I think it's a very important extra step. And you do have a genetics counselor, so if things do show up um, in the course of this uh, natural history protocol, you are in touch with the patient um, discussing what those findings are. So I think, you know, when you wanna make decisions in a disease, um, the strength of having additional information 
is always helpful. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, um, Dr. Hassan, thank you very much. And um, I'd like to circle back with you at another date to go over some of the uh, new research protocols that you have opened, treatment-based protocols, um, because I think it's important for everybody to hear about, you know, not only what you're working on, but also um, areas that a patient uh, can enroll in, uh, you know, to try some cutting-edge research protocols. So. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, absolutely happy to do that. I just want to emphasize that all this work is made possible, of course, as we discussed in the beginning with the patients coming to NIH, participating in research, and trying to advance the field. But I'm also very fortunate to have an outstanding group of uh, research nurses. I think many of you know the patients, know Maria, Kathy, Ivan, who are extremely wonderful and committed to mesothelioma research. Uh, physicians, as Dr. Gafford and my fellow Jeevan and nurse practitioner Rosemary, all of us working together, as well as having uh, other researchers such as Dr. Shram, Dr. Blakely, Dr. Hong, who are interested in mesothelioma research. So I think we are at a great time at NCI where we have a group of physicians, scientists interested in benefiting patients with mesothelioma by doing research in the lab and the clinic. So I do a small part of this big group of people and so and it's wonderful and it's wonderful to collaborate with the Mesa Foundation as well as other mesothelioma researchers throughout the country to further this research. So thank you again uh, for contact, inviting us and able to share our protocol. And thank you, Dr. Hassan, for all the years of research and patient care. Um, also want to take this time to thank you as well for your service on the uh, Scientific Advisory Board over the years. Uh, Dr. Hassan is the past chair of that board. Um, it was all very helpful as we were continuing to build our programs as well. So thank you for your time today and good. best regards to all your colleagues. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. Hassan. Bye.